The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. This is uh, one of the more loaded uh, sections in the New Testament that talks about the divinity of Jesus Christ. So Christ the King Sunday, proving the divinity uh, of Christ is really the goal of this text and the goal of our message tonight. We're going to look at the King of the Cosmos from Colossians 1. Let me read, uh, we're just saying through him a little bit, but let me read through this text as Paul writes it here. It says, For he, that's God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and are for him. He is before all things, and in him, here's the key section I want to lock in on here tonight, in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, which was shed on the cross. Here ends our sermon lesson. little quick intro to the book of Colossians. Uh, Every book of the Bible is unique, obviously, in its own way. One of the unique qualities of the book of Colossians, or the letter to the church in Colossae, is that every New Testament scholar will tell you it's written to combat a specific heresy, a specific false teaching that had crept up in the Colossian church. We don't have another letter that's quite like that, that's addressing one uh, distinct idiosyncratic false teaching and heresy. Uh, The Colossian heresy was believed to be a, an early version of something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, has, has a false teaching that's been debunked ever since it first came up in the second century AD. The Christian church has looked through it, said, nope, this is completely false, uh, and, and, and gotten rid of it. But every once in a while, Gnosticism sort of rears its ugly head. Uh, in pop culture, it pops up every once in a while. So last time was perhaps about a dozen years ago, Uh, when Dan Brown was writing New York Times bestsellers like The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, those books were predicated on the the secret, mysterious, uh, lost gospels of Jesus Christ called the Gnostic Gospels, which really were just completely false gospels. But a little bit of information is sometimes a dangerous thing. And the masses didn't didn't understand, are these really just missing lost gospels? No, they were, they were false gospels written, combated by the early church, and declared as false from early on. The heart of the Gnostic controversy, the Gnostic error, and the Colossian error, was not that they said that Jesus Christ was bad. It's that they said Jesus Christ was less than what he actually was. Now, ultimately, you, you run into the same place, unbelief. But they didn't, say, they didn't just outright say Jesus is bad. They said Jesus was less, less authoritative over creation, less uh, sufficient for saving us from our sins, less divine 
as God's son. Okay? They didn't say Jesus was bad. They said he was less. Here's what one of the commentators wrote uh, that I came across as I was preparing this week. He said, the false teachers in Colossae, like the false teachers of our own day, would not deny the, the importance of Jesus Christ. Nobody says Jesus is a bad guy. Nobody says Jesus isn't one of the most influential characters in world history. Everybody says that. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, everybody says that. Here's what they did. They would simply dethrone him, giving him prominence but not preeminence. Probably no paragraph in the New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus Christ than this one. He goes on to say, we can keep ourselves from going on a detour and becoming lost in what's being said if we remember that the Apostle Paul wrote this to prove the preeminence, that's the supremacy, of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the problem with the Colossians is not really all that different from the problem with unbelief in the world today. The main problem uh, was not so much seeing Jesus as a bad guy, it was not seeing Jesus as not exactly what he said he was, which was the all-powerful, uh, eternal Son of God. Now, I would suggest that's not only the problem in the non-believing world today, I'm going to suggest that's the biggest problem threatening the church today. Furthermore, I would say that's the biggest problem that threatens your life. You and I have too small of a view of Jesus. Now, here's why this is so deceptive and we're kind of blind to it. It's the nature of, of sin. My guess is if I asked everybody as they came in the doors here tonight, what's the biggest problem that you're facing in life right now? I can almost guarantee not a single person would tell me, I have too low of a view of Jesus. But the Apostle Paul says, no, that's exactly what your biggest problem is. You have too low of a view of Jesus. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, I can even prove this to you. Let me flesh this out a little bit. Some of you are worried about something in life right now. Do you know why you're worried about that thing? Because you have too low of a view of Jesus. You don't believe deep down inside that Jesus is completely autonomous, completely authoritative, that he controls the entire cosmos for his glory and your benefit. You don't have a big enough image of Jesus. Some of you are struggling with uh, forgiving others. You're holding grudges and you're resentful and you're whatever else. Why? Because you have too low of a view of the grace of Jesus Christ. You haven't yet fully comprehended and embraced uh, the enormity of the hell that Jesus went through in order to rescue you and me from our sins. You don't have all of his grace in the bank and therefore you have trouble giving any of it away. Too low of a view of the grace of Jesus. Some of you are struggling with, I mean, we're all struggling with different temptations right now. Why do we struggle with those temptations? Because deep down inside, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you the life that really is life, we aren't completely sure that we trust him. That if we obey him fully, if we hand over our lives to him and obey his commands, that he's going to deliver the goods when it comes to our happiness and contentment. We don't fully buy that. We believe, but we don't fully believe. We have too low of a view of Jesus. Is this point making sense? This is the basic problem of life that you and I face. In a nutshell, the problem with the Colossians, in a nutshell, is the exact same problem spiritually that you and I face. Too low of a view of Jesus. Okay? That's what we got to get into here tonight. Um, and by the way, there's so many interesting phrases in this text that what the, the commentators will say is the Apostle Paul is borrowing from the Colossian philosophers. So what exactly does it mean when, when G, uh, the Apostle Paul says Jesus is the image of God? What does it mean that he says he's the firstborn of all creation? Those are very interesting phrases. Um, and it, it would be interesting to actually walk through what every one of those phrases means 
And I actually do have a running commentary written in my sermon manuscript, and I have some copies out there if you would like that. But it would take three hours tonight to go through all of that, and we don't got that. So uh, I'm just going to lock into one of these phrases, okay? Here's the phrase. In him all things hold together. We're going to ask the the good Lutheran question, what does this mean? In him all things hold together. There's a ton just in that little phrase. Um, Humor me for a second, a little history lesson. Um, Perhaps the most famous or most influential 18th century philosopher, uh, you know, when you took in college that intro to philosophy class and you leaned very heavily on spark notes to help get you through and all that, you you might recall... uh, we're running into a name called name of a guy named David Hume. David Hume was probably the most influential philosopher of the 18th century, uh, the, kind of the quintessential empiricist and naturalist. He was, by profession, an agnostic. You fast forward to the 20th century and you run into a guy who's probably the most influential philosopher named Bertrand Russell. Uh, he also was a naturalist and an empiricist as as uh, many philosophers are, but you look through some of the, the greatest minds that paralleled them, the, the astrophysicists and the biologists and the philosophers, and many said the same things, but not, didn't articulate them as well as Hume and Russell did. This particular point, one of the things that extensively in Hume and Russell's writings they say are, we don't believe in a creator God, but what's fascinating is how incredibly orderly the universe is. Because if the universe came about by, Russell's famous phrase was, a random collision of molecules, if the universe came about by random accidental chance processes, how did the universe get so ordered in the first place? These guys are saying, that's a tremendous problem for atheism. And I know, by the way, one of the reasons I I love uh, preaching at this service is I know a lot of you actually run into uh, and rub shoulders with a lot of people who have, have some real skepticism towards scripture. And I'm telling you, a lot of atheists say this is a big problem for them. How did the universe get so orderly if the natural state of the universe is to go from order to disorder? Let me give you just one example of this. Uh, I read an article not that long ago by an astrophysicist by the name of Dr. Hugh Ross. And one of the things he was talking about was how incredibly uh, fortunate our particular planet is. Since 1995, we've, we've discovered over a thousand other planets outside of our solar system, and none of them is even close to being habitable for human life. But we sit in this unique little Goldilocks existence in the entire cosmos. One of the things that he was talking about is the fact that the planets outside of us, Uranus, Neptune, Saturn, and Jupiter, they're the exact right size and the exact right mass, and they have the exact right orbital paths, and they're the exact right distance from one another, and from us, and from the sun, so that they intercept the vast majority of the meteors that would otherwise pelt Earth into oblivion. But they let just enough meteors hit the planet because that creates, uh, I don't understand the science behind it completely, but it creates environmental changes that are beneficial for life here on Earth. They don't allow most of the meteors, but they allow just the right amount of meteors. How does that happen? How does it happen that the earth is on just the right degree of axis turn so that life is habitable? If it's a mile further away from the sun or a mile closer to the sun uh, by degrees, life is not habitable here. How does that get just right? 
if the universe came about through random chance processes, why is everything so orderly? Why does everything hold together? Um, so they start proposing theories. One of my favorite ones uh, is, is something called, it sounds kind of science fiction-y, but something called dark matter. Uh, dark matter, if you've heard of this before, is scientists will, will use this as an accepted theory now. And what they do is they look out into the cosmos and they say, everything seems to hold together. How does it hold together? It shouldn't hold together. Um, and so they propose, they say that the now 75% of the universe is, uh, is composed of this stuff called dark matter. What's interesting about dark matter is you can't measure it at all directly. In other words, we have absolutely no instrument that you can just point at dark matter and say, oh, there it is, and here's how big it is. No, to examine dark matter, you have to infer its existence on the basis of the effects that it has on things that you can see. In other words, we don't believe in dark matter because we observe it directly. We believe in dark matter merely because we perceive the effects that it has on things that we can see. C.S. Lewis said that's exactly the reason why we believe in God or we start believing in God. Not because we look at him directly, but because we look at the effect that he has on everything else on Earth. So, uh, again, when skeptics use that argument against God, just understand, the scientists of the world are all using that on dark matter. But essentially what they've done is they've looked through their telescopes and they said the universe is expanding at such extraordinary speeds that at some point in time it should just rip apart into non-existence and into oblivion, creating our non-existence. But it doesn't. And when you measure the mass of the universe, at some point in time in the past, it should have all, when you add up all the mass, it should have had such a gravitational force that it collapsed inward upon itself, squashing us and lead, again, leading to our non-existence. And yet it doesn't. Somehow, things just all hold together. Why do things all just sort of hold together? The Apostle Paul says, Hume and Russell and all the other movers and shakers in the secular world don't get it because they're asking the wrong question. They're taking into account some of the facts, but they're not taking into account the ultimate facts. The question is not, in what do all these things hold together? The question that the Apostle Paul is answering is he's saying, in whom do these things hold together? The cosmos is inexplicably ordered, but the cosmos produces naturally chaos. So how did it get orderly in the first place? The supreme son of God, the king of the cosmos, is the one through whom these things were created. He's the one through whom these things are sustained. In him, all things hold together. The Bible is always way ahead of its time answering questions that the world hasn't asked yet. Now, how do you apply this to yourself? Let me put it like this. Um, put your life into one of two categories. We said the cosmos is this inexplicably, beautifully complicated but ordered existence that in Christ holds together. The other option is absolute chaos. That's the natural state of the universe that moves from the state of order to a state of disorder. So if you were to describe your life right now, would you say, yes, it is a cosmos? Or would you say it is a chaos? And I know, we've already established before, St. Marcus prefers to say hot mess. Okay? Is it a cosmos or is it a hot mess? What Paul is saying here is the degree to which your life is under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, amidst the chaos, you will remain a cosmos. 
But if your life is not under the supremacy of Christ, not in obedience to Christ, not under the kingship of Christ, it slowly starts to deteriorate naturally into a chaos. Now, somebody might say, Pastor, are you suggesting that if I just have a little bit more faith and I'm just a little bit more obedient in my life, everything in my life is going to go perfectly well? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are some blessings that naturally come with obedience to God's commands. But so far as I can tell, Christians face just as much sickness, just as much relationship turmoil, uh, just as much uh, life problems as anybody else. I'm not saying that being under the supremacy of Christ gets rid of all your life, awful life circumstances. I'm saying it causes you to handle your life circumstances in the midst of the chaos. Paul is suggesting it depends on the supremacy of Christ in your life. In, in other words, you can kind of use the planets as your role models. You notice the, plan, the planets don't have their own um, personal will. They don't get to make their own choices, but they do have laws that they have to abide by. They do have laws of physics that God created for them, the laws of planetary motion, and they do abide by those laws. And what happens when they abide by those laws? They just beautifully continue to fly around these enormous bodies through the cosmos at incomprehensible speeds without colliding, without falling apart, without whatever. It's this beautiful harmony because they submit to the supremacy of their king. Is that you? Um, in him all things hold together, which means in him you hold together. And therefore, if you don't feel like you're holding together right now, is it possible, is it possible that your thoughts are not, and your heart is not completely under the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you, put this a slightly different way. Here's one of the reasons you know that you're acting as king or queen in your own life. Do you consciously or subconsciously know exactly the way your life has to go in order for you to be happy? If your answer to that is yes, you're still functioning as your own king and queen in your life. The submission to Christ as king says, not only do I not control everything in my life, but I don't even really know the way my life is actually supposed to go. I'm happy to be along on the ride. I'm happy to let you be driving. You know, um, how do we get less of the, the chaos and more of the cosmos on the inside? This impressive, incredible expanse that is mysteriously held together. It's really kind of the message of, of, of Christ the King Sunday, which I mentioned it earlier, but Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday in the church here and it ushers into the Advent and Christmas season. It's, it's a very similar thought. Um, the message of Christmas and the message of Christ the King Sunday is not that Jesus came to this planet to give us warm and fuzzy feelings, to kick up his feet in front of a fireplace and knock back eggnog. And the message of Christmas is also not that Christ came to earth to do that so that you could sit with your feet up and knock back eggnog. The secular Christmas songs are awful about this. They create, all create this feeling that you're supposed to, you're supposed to have these warm and fuzzy feelings. And you know what? I, I've been a pastor for 10 years. I see more people cry during the months of November and December in part 
because the world is constantly telling them they should be joyful and the circumstances of their life are preventing them from being as happy as the world is saying they should be. So let me at least give you a little bit of relief and tell you that's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that (laughs) Jesus came to take the chaos in your place. See, what sin does, if Jesus comes to take sin, Jesus comes to take chaos because sin creates chaos in life. The Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. And what does he mean by that? He says dying is the result of sin. Sin rips you apart. What is death? What is dying? It's your body disintegrating. It's your body decaying. It's your body falling apart. That's what sin does. It tears the world and it tears you apart. It's chaos to the ultimate degree. Creation is unraveling. That's the state of a fallen world. It's true on every level. This is the reason why uh, we just, Adrian and I just decorated our, we just put up our Christmas trees uh, this past week. And I know it's not Thanksgiving yet and there's rules on that and when you can put them up. But I didn't have time. So we we had to put it up when we could put it up. So put up the Christmas tree and without fail, I have no idea why we own glass ornaments. It's just, it's a bad idea because we should have rubber ornaments. Every time I go in, I walk into the other room and I hear, (laughs) you know, it's just in a thousand everywhere. Animals are running out of the room because there's glass pieces, shards flying at them. They're like shrapnel. Uh, But every every year, Adrian breaks one of these. I love her to death, but she breaks one of those glass ornaments. (laughs) Now, there's a reason you can't sweep up the pieces, hold them up back at six feet, drop them again, and hope that when they hit the ground, they're going to reassemble. Because that's not the natural order of a fallen world. The natural order of a fallen world is things go from order to chaos. And the exact same thing happens in our lives. The exact same thing happens in our relationships. You sin against someone, and what does that happen in that relationship? It starts to shatter. It starts to rip apart and fall apart and there's mistakes and errors and sin and rebellion. It leads to chaos, not the cosmos. So the message of Christmas, the message of Christ the King Sunday is the king humbles himself to come to earth to swallow the chaos in our place. And you'll notice that when he does that, the pinnacle of when he does that is on the cross. And what is he doing? He's falling apart. His body is broken and his blood is literally being spilled out onto the earth. So physically he's falling apart. He's swallowing the chaos. Spiritually, he's swallowing the chaos. You've heard me say this before. That's the moment when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only spot in the Gospels where he doesn't call God Father. Why? Because he can't call him Father. Why? Because he's being relationally ripped apart from his Father. God the Father and God the Son on the cross are experiencing chaos because they're being ripped apart. That's the result of sin. That's hell. Well, why did he do that? If Jesus never sinned, why would he have to be ripped apart? The man of peace came to take the chaos so that we, the mistake-laden creatures of rebellion, would live forever in peace. And if you see that, and if you believe that, you will have eternal peace. And in this lifetime, to the degree that you see that, you will be able to have an internal cosmos amidst the inevitable chaotic circumstances of life. See, if if you see that Jesus swallowed the chaos for you so that you could live eternally in peace, what that does to you is it gives you perspective. And so you say, look, 
I might get, who knows, 70, 80 years here, maybe, maybe. And guess what? My life maybe isn't exactly as I would have drawn it up. My career trajectory, not exactly how I had envisioned it. My health, not exactly as I had hoped for. Maybe my family, maybe my romantic life, maybe whatever else. It's not exactly as I had hoped and dreamed. But if I'm honest with myself, man, have I made a mess of things at times. And man, couldn't it or shouldn't it possibly be a lot worse? And yet, despite that, because of God's unimaginable love for me, I have been reconciled to my eternal Father God through the blood of Jesus, my Savior. And soon and very soon, everything, everything in heaven and on earth will be better than anything that I could have ever dreamed for. See, that's the message of of Christmas, and that's the message of Christ the King Sunday. The Son of God came to swallow the chaos of your life so that you could have eternal joy. Let the King of the cosmos into your heart, and that will give you peace. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight we come and humbly confess that um, we have too low of a view of you too much of the time. We worry and we panic and we don't show grace and we fall into temptation and we live in fear because we, we don't completely trust that you are who you say you are, the one in whom all things hold together. Help us have a renewed mind and heart on that concept tonight, Lord Jesus. You came and you swallowed the chaos on the cross and forgive us, forgave us for all of our lack of faith. Now help us grow in faith and to live confidently and boldly and courageously, acknowledging that you are king over all. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.